I'm Jeff Ivory, and I would like to welcome you to the live recording of Drive, Stories of Sustainable Entrepreneurship, our podcast series with the business of fashion. We're pleased that you can join us for an inspiring conversation with a true pioneer of sustainable fashion, a designer who's been ahead of the environmental curve for decades, none other than Eileen Fisher. And we at DHL are incredibly excited to co-host BOF's first ever live podcast recording. As a leading global logistics partner to the world of fashion, retail and e-commerce, We play an integral role in the industry in enabling businesses of all sizes to grow sustainably by pioneering a range of solutions available to all of our customers as they expand both domestically and into new international markets. Like Eileen Fisher, DHL recognises the importance of sustainable business practices and we know that fashion-conscious consumers care about the carbon footprints of brands they purchase. We want to use our unique position as international logistics experts to help make a difference and lead the shift towards more carbon-neutral lifestyles through our Go Green solutions. We hope you enjoy hearing about Eileen's journey, her many successes, as well as the challenges she's had to face and overcome along the way. Thank you and enjoy. I'm Imran Ahmed, founder and CEO of The Business of Fashion, and welcome to the second season of Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear the stories of fashion's most dynamic entrepreneurs in their own words. In this special episode of Drive, we share the inspirational conversation between New York's beloved sustainable pioneer Eileen Fisher and BOF's Lauren Sherman, recorded live in front of an audience of BOF professionals and students at the Parsons New School of Design. As one of the industry's most respected voices and entrepreneurs when it comes to building a sustainable enterprise, Eileen shares how she approaches global growth and international supply and distribution chains while maintaining her sustainable principles. Something's got to shift in terms of the whole industry. Like we're, we're one business and we do the best we can in all the areas that we can. And, you know, we still struggle with shipping and shipping around the world. You know, it's complicated. Um, we would like to produce here, but... Right now, only 3% of all clothing is produced in this country because there just isn't that much local production. When we first started saying, five years ago, I would say to people at an event, I'd say, come and talk to us, you know, we'll share what we know, and, you know, that kind of thing, and people wouldn't come, you know. Now it's like the phone rings all the time, so that's a good thing. So here's Eileen Fisher on what it really takes to create a global, sustainable enterprise. Eileen, thank you so much for being with us today. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Nice to be here. I've never recorded a, a podcast oh, you've live never? before. Oh, really? It's kind of... It, yes. Is it it's, weird? It's Usually interesting very... because I've listened to live recordings but not, uh-huh. not done it. So it, it feels a little bit surreal to be up here on stage. And with you, who is... I would say you have become a celebrity in the fashion industry mm. among entrepreneurs and, and I would say young women as well who really admire what you've done. Mm. And I feel like my friends and I talk about Eileen Fisher. We, you're part of the culture, and it's, it's really so fun to speak to you, especially about your efforts to reduce and kind of build your business in a different way. And so I think to start, you know, a big part of the series is the word sustainability. And, and you and I were talking the other day about how that word doesn't really mean much. But the, the idea of 
looking at environmental impact, how that affects the business and also how it affects the the planet and and doing good work and and all of those things. You have been a leader in that. And I'm curious to know, when did you first realize that, you know, having a value system around all of these issues was important for, for the business? So I grew up in a family with seven children, and my mother sewed, and sometimes I tell the story that my mother saved every scrap of fabric. So she had a big um, hope chest in the, my closet, and we had this big walk-in closet with a big hope chest, and she would sew, and every piece of fabric that was bigger than like that, four or five inches, she would save, cut into squares, and put in the hope chest. Um, my mother was, of course, grew up in the Depression, so you know everything was precious. Materials were precious. Um, she didn't waste anything. So I think she embedded that idea of no waste uh, into my mind, and so I felt guilty wasting things. So I, I think it was just a very deep, that idea. I remember the first time I my first fairly large production. Um, And I remember um, going to the cutting room and just being shocked to see bolts and bolts of this fabric. And and then after they cut it, um, the leftover, this I love this cotton. It was this French terry nubby kind of textured cotton. And it was almost like a live. It was was so, I was so excited to do this. And, but I just remember after they cut it, they had it in these big bins, the leftover pieces. And I just remember picking up a stack of it and like I was going to take it home and save it like my mother used to save it. And I just remember being in the elevator and bursting into tears about all this fabric being wasted. I know. So, but anyway, it was interesting because after I did that, I went back and I came to understand that the way I had designed the clothes, um, that if I, if I changed the sleeve, just like a quarter of an inch, he could cut the sleeve on the side of the top and save tons of this fabric. So, you know, I started to sort of think that way, like I didn't, I didn't want to waste. And that was, that was very, very early. Yeah, so how long ago did you start the business? Well, I started 35 years ago. Uh, and this was early on in that process? Yeah, this was in the first year. Um, wow. Right. But the, I think the whole concept of the clothes themselves was about making simple things. I hated to throw clothes away, so I wanted to keep the things. I wanted to make good quality things, and I wanted to make simple things that I could keep that wouldn't go out of fashion, but would sort of belong to the moment or something like that. I didn't want to be out of it, but I wanted, you know, I wanted things that would sort of transcend the moment. When you when you started thinking about not wasting fabrics or or what have you when did that become a part of the process of the business so yeah. you're you're trying not to waste in terms of material and i'm assuming it spilled into other things when did that become a thing that you were talking about with with the team yeah um well i think i think the kind of company we were it was natural fibers i think we drew in uh, people who kind of naturally cared about nature. Um, uh, and I think it was actually other members of the team. We hired a head, uh, a woman to head social consciousness 25 years ago. Wow. Yeah. So and, that's the word they used before sustainability. Right. And then, you know, she hired someone to 
specifically focus on sustainability, someone else to focus on human rights, things like that. So, so yeah. we did that before we did marketing. In some ways, it's good marketing, though. Yeah, maybe. I think we, we're, still, we're still wrestling with the marketing part and getting the word out. So that's interesting that you say that we're kind of famous for this. And, you know, um, it's something we're still trying to figure out how to get the word out. So many kind of amazing young companies that, you know, tell the story so well. So. Well, when, back then, when you, when you hired this person... Were there did did a big corporations have have someone working on this stuff or not really? How did you even think of of knowing? How did you even know to do that? Wow, that's a really good question. Um, I don't think it was my idea. You know, like I said, I think we hired people who, you know, who were drawn in sort of energetically to the concept. They liked the clothes. They were intrigued by what I was trying to do. And so I think it was others in the company that came up with the idea of hiring someone to head social con- social consciousness. Um, it, I, I distinctly remember it wasn't my idea, but I don't remember whose idea it was. And, it's terrible. And uh, maybe it was a group effort. Probably. So everything seems to emerge that way. Your business is, is employee-owned, right? Right. Partially. Well, 40% employee-owned. That's amazing. We're, yeah. Yeah. We were, well, it was, I owned it 100%. And when we started to have extra profits, mm-hmm. well, the first thing we did was share profits. And then um, that was a whole long, complicated story. But partly it had to do with trying to kind of shift some of the value. I wanted to take some personal money out. But then it's a little complicated, the whole ESOP, employee stock ownership. Do you recommend doing that? Um, yeah, yeah, I recommend doing it. It's, um, uh, I think it's really great. I think profit sharing maybe is, is, an, is a quicker and easier way for small companies, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, it has, it's, it's a little complicated. Uh, so um, I think you have to be a certain size probably to make sense out of doing that. But I recommend it because I think people really feeling like owners, um, uh, they, you know, they, they care in a different way. I, I don't, I think... I'm not sure because I don't know what it's like to be in other companies anymore. When, when you started, you hired a social responsibility person, a sustainability person. If you look at, say, a fabric show now, one of the big shows in Paris or what yeah. have you, there's tons of sustainable fabrics. I'm sure a lot right. of them are natural fibers. Mm-hmm. There's, there's all this technology and material. W- was it like that back oh, then? God, no, no, no. no. No, no. Um, what did? How did you find natural fibers that worked for what you were trying to build in in terms of? Yeah, um, it was a search, and we would always talk to the manufacturers and say, you know, at the, in those days everything had, you know, some percentage polyester or some percentage acrylic or something like that, and so I wanted all natural. So I was always saying, can you make this fabric? without the polyester? Can you make it without the acrylic? And, and they would. After a while, they started making things, especially for us. And, and today, do you feel like, what do you think about what's on the market? Do you feel like there's so much you're so excited about? Where could people improve? Yeah, no, it's so much better. Um, I think uh, materials is uh, our, certainly our biggest impact on the environment. That's our business that we're in. And so um, being able to resource 
more sustainable materials, and also um, actually be a part of creating that and working with manufacturers, you know, and farmers and dye houses to, to change the way they do things, to bring, you know, consultants in to help them and be a part of it that way. Um, that's great. And, but it's great that so many companies are getting on board. I mean, I think that's huge. You know, if I had it to do over again, I would start there and only work with materials that are sustainable. You have scaled your business to a, a very large size. You're still independently owned. Um, how did you manage to... You sell to all the major department stores. You have your own direct retail. How did you manage to scale a business that was so, I don't want to say particular because your styles are very universal, but the idea behind it is is pretty intellectual in some ways. Mm-hmm. I'm curious to know how you were able to, why, how you were able to reach so many different kinds of people. Hmm. Huh. Well, um, I think, I think people in the early days recognized something about the concept. Um, and I think we started by opening well, we didn't start by opening stores. We started by selling to boutiques, to small stores. And then we opened a store. We opened a store on Madison Avenue uh, and 53rd Street, which is still there, that store. Actually, we opened a tiny store on East 9th Street. Um, that was my very first little closet store. Um, um, I don't know. I never expected that, that people were drawn in, you know, that, I don't know, people saw it, like... I remember we tried to sell to some department stores, but they didn't understand it. They would look at it and say, it's just too simple. I think your clothes would just get lost in our store. It would be like a rack of clothes. Just Nobody would, nobody would look at them because they're too simple. Uh, and so um, we felt like we had to open a store so people could see the whole. It was more of a concept, and they needed to understand the whole and how the clothes went together and how they worked and, you know, um, sort of almost modular or something. That's what I hear a lot of young brands saying now as well, that they feel like they need to open a store to tell their story. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's too bad, but yeah. <laughs> well, actually, young brands now have the Internet, so which we did not have. So I think that's an incredible opportunity to more easily tell the story than we had. Opening a store is a big investment. Yeah, I think that a lot of them spent a lot of money investing in well, marketing online. Oh my God. <laughs> we just redid our website. Oh, my God. We still have more work to do on that. But yikes. That's crazy how much it all costs. I don't know. I thought that would have been cheaper than opening <laughs> the store, but I think I might be wrong. I, I, think, I think that might be wrong. But what was the kind of shift when, when the department star, store started to, to say, Okay, actually, we really we need this product because so many people are asking for it, or what have you. When when did that turn happen? Yeah, I remember um, Bloomingdale's was the first one we sold, in, you know, um, in volume. And I remember we opened that store, and somebody from Bloomingdale's walked in and said, "Oh my God!" Like people are standing in line with stacks of clothes. I, I we don't know what you're doing. We don't understand it, but. I think we have to put a whole department in. So that was kind of the beginning. Yeah. 
And, and when did you start communicating about, were you communicating regarding the, the stuff you were doing with fibers and fabric and oh. being careful from the beginning? Or, or when, did you, when did the public find out that you oh. were a, a sustainable business? Oh, yeah. Well, we worked on it for a long time. We started doing organic cotton. Hmm. We, we tried it, I'm going to say, 25 or 30 years ago. We did the first organic cotton. But um, we knew that we couldn't do it across the board. I mean, there just weren't that many materials that were that accessible. Um, and so we were just doing it little by little. And um, uh, so we were, we were careful. We didn't want to just tell one story of a grouping that was organic cotton or something like that, you know, just felt like um, people would see through that and they would go like, well, why is this cotton not organic? Or, you know, what about the dyes that you're using? And so we just knew that we would be, we felt that we would be targeted if we just, you know, told one story. So we decided to wait and um, we're just really quiet and just kept working and trying to keep, you know, just kept doing better. And then... um, I guess it was, you know, because you were asking more. I think maybe seven years ago or so, I went to China, mm-hmm. and um, I became really aware of the water crisis and just really hit me there. And realizing that we couldn't go on, you know, making clothing and using so much water. I mean, cotton, we know T-shirts, I don't know, 700 or 3,000 gallons of water, some crazy amount of water it uses. It's crazy. Um, just to make one T-shirt, you know, so that is definitely not sustainable. So um, we began to get, you know, more focused on, you know, what can we do? How can we do it bigger? How can we tell our story? How can we get more committed to really making more of an impact? Um, So we set up our Vision 2020 goals around five or six years ago now, and that's when we really... um, as a company, work to embed it throughout the company and to commit to, you know, turning all of our, our materials into um, more eco-preferred kind of materials and just really working across the board in every way that we could. What resources did you use back then to establish those goals? Were there enough other brands doing this and sharing information? Was it organizations? Wow, really interesting. Um, yes, there were organizations. Um, what we did was we used consultants, and they helped us figure out, you know, which materials we were using that were problematic, what was problematic about them, how to focus our energy on um, on cleaner materials. And um, so that was really helpful. And what were the tenets of your Vision 2020 goal? Right. Um, well, we wanted to make all of our materials um, be eco-preferred. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also have goals around energy use and being net positive, being um, which we have to buy offsets to do. Something we were talking about the other day in, in our preliminary chat, Pre, pre-podcast chat was logistics and oh, yeah. it, the thing mm-hmm. that's interesting, you mentioned the organic cotton. I don't want to call out another company, but 
I will because I'm a journalist, so I'm allowed to. But So if you think about H&M, when they started doing the organic cotton stuff, essentially the the call-out was, well, you're shipping all this stuff in planes, and, and right. what is the real benefit, et cetera, et cetera. Right. As, as a company your size... How are you thinking about all of that in terms of we were t- we were talking about lo- local production? You do have a decent amount of local production, right? Yeah, we and, do. Yeah. And how but are not you? Enough. How are you thinking about changing that if yeah. if you want to want to change it? Yeah, yeah. Um, day by day, uh, local production is really hard. I started my business producing locally, um, but um, we ended up you know, moving overseas, most of it. Now we do about 20, 25% uh, domestically. The problem is that you can't, you, it's just really not much production capacity here. Um, not only that, we do things like we grow organic cotton here, but then we ship it overseas to be spun and, you know, dyed and, you know, m- made into fabric. Um, so that seems crazy. And so something's got to shift in terms of the whole industry. Like we're we're one business, and we do the best we can in all the areas that we can. In you know, like I was saying, organic cotton or organic linen or the responsible wool, and all those areas we do what we can. We still struggle with shipping, you know, and shipping around the world. You know, moving things around, and you know, it's um, it's complicated. Um, we would like to produce here, but um, Right now, only 3% of all clothing is produced in this country because there just isn't that much local production. We have our tiny factory, <laughs> which is yes. amazing, where we're doing the recycle, the circular stuff. Um, so uh, one of our current efforts, so we have lots of different efforts that we're dealing with. The first is the materials themselves. Um, but the other is the whole idea of being circular. So... Um, so we think about our materials from the seeds from the very beginning all the way through to taking our clothes back from our customers, and that we've been doing for 10 years. And so we have warehouses full of clothes that we have been taking back that we don't want to end up in the landfill or you know, in other third-world markets where they end up in landfill there if they don't get sold so, or destroying the craft markets. Um, so um, so we process our clothes, we resell them, and um, we resell about half of the clothes, and it's actually a profitable little part of the business, and it helps to, it helps to pay for our uh, sort of R&D. We do a lot of uh, um, sort of innovation work in our tiny factory where we're actually exploring recycling organic materials because all our materials are mostly organic, uh, which has not actually been... Not much has been done except in the in the industry. Just most of the recycling is done with synthetics or just cotton. Uh, so we are um, we are working with the felt loom. Mm. You saw? Did you see our factory? Yeah, it's fun. Um, and we've kind of discovered this process of actually remaking our clothes. And so we're now making art pieces and pillows and. Um, bags and things like that and uh first group is going to be in our stores this season and um but we've been showing the art pieces and selling to architects and uh so we have this idea that we believe we can actually 
um, without making more clothes, double the size of our business. It's a fantasy, but I, I think it's actually possible. It's, it's really, I was actually talking to someone about this idea today. It's shocking to me that more companies aren't so that they can control the secondary market and also get more value out of that product. Right, right. People are reselling stuff now. Yeah. They're donating. They're taking things yeah. back. It, I'm shocked that more companies aren't doing what you're doing and having kind of a section in their store of yeah. vintage whatever their brand is. Yeah. Have you noticed since when? Did, how long ago did you start doing that? Um, well, we started by putting it in our outlet stores, and our, we tested it first in our lab store up on, um, near our home office in Irvington. Uh, so that was the same year we started taking the clothes back, uh, 10 years ago. Oh, wow. And, and, and what has the consumer response been to all of that? Yeah, surprising. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Um, for, for me, the biggest, most surprising thing is for me to see the clothes, because I was kind of terrified at first. It's like, oh, my God, see the clothes coming back, that all the mistakes and all the things uh-huh. you didn't like and all of that. So, um, so that's been fun to see. But the response has been really, really good. Um, yeah. I, I, I was shocked. I wasn't sure if people were going to buy the used clothes. Although I did hear that we have a big market in you know, consignment shops and things like that, and that our clothes have a way of kind of keeping some of their value at, over time. So a uh, big eBay, and now we sell on Yertle. Um, so I was surprised by that. But it's been really good, actually, and we were planning to kind of uh, explode that. Do you spend a lot of time meeting customers? Because I'm assuming there's a real Eileen Fisher community of, uh, of women, and, women, and yeah. I'm sure some men who, <laughs> yeah, who are, men, right. are collecting your stuff and, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know. Yeah. I used to do that, um, not so much anymore. Um, I encourage um, the people working in the company to get out and meet the customers and you know actually see the product in the store and you know all of that. But I don't get to do that so much anymore. Do you have a lot of entrepreneurs coming to you in you know asking you how to do this, how yeah. to make the business better? Yeah. I used to when I did more speaking engagements and things like that, and now I um, don't do that so much. So, I, but people do come, you know, to the other people in the company and ask a lot of questions, and we fantasize about uh, opening an institute and, you know, kind of trying to share the um, what we know, you know, about sustainability and about entrepreneurship and all those kind of things. But uh, that's another project. So. Have you ever thought of doing an app, like an open source app or something yeah. like that? Yeah, actually, we're talking about that. Um, not necessarily an app, but um, some way to open source what we know. Because we get so many phone calls, especially in the sustainability, that we have trouble managing it. Yeah. And we want to help because, you know, we know that we're just one company. And if we can't do it alone, there's so many changes that need to happen. And, and it's really good to see people really want to. When we first started saying, five years ago, I would say to people at an event, I'd say, come and talk to us, you know, we'll share what we know, and, you know, that kind of thing, and people wouldn't come, you know. Now it's like the phone rings all the time, so that's a good thing. This podcast is delivered by DHL. 
As the logistics partner of many of fashion's most prestigious businesses, from billion-dollar brands to emerging designers and innovative SMEs, DHL is stitched into the fabric of the $2.4 trillion industry. Present in more than 220 countries and territories, DHL provides tailored and comprehensive go-green logistics and business solutions that enable fashion businesses to grow sustainably as they expand domestically and into new international markets. For more information about DHL and how it can help your business increase transparency around your environmental impact, minimize logistics-related emissions, and offset what cannot be avoided, visit logistics.dhl. What do you think shifted? What do you think Mm. the turning point was? Because obviously climate change is something that we're Mm. all talking about a lot now. But we have been for many years. I guess it's accelerated now. But was there a a turning point that you remember that that more companies were interested in what you were doing and also doing things on their own? Yeah, um, it feels like it's just been the last two years, and I don't know exactly what shifted. Yeah, that kind of desperate sense that, oh, my God, yeah. someone's got to save this planet. Yeah. Our government's not going to do that unless we change it. Something that has, has started to come up in these conversations, I heard Dana Thomas, who the fashion journalist who wrote a new book called Fashionopolis. I don't know if she interviewed you for it if she didn't she should have but mm-hmm. it's about kind of clothing consumption oh, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. and and one thing that at the talk she gave and something that's been coming up more frequently is this idea of well maybe some of these companies ne- need to re we live in this capitalist society yeah. that is very driven by you are successful if you are making more money every single oh, year yeah. And and it's so growth driven. the the mar- The public markets are growth driven. The private markets are are growth driven, and the private investors and and so, in reality, if you're actually going to reduce, you're not going to buy as much stuff. And the stuff that you do buy, you're going to keep for a really long time or resell it. it that sort of thing to to make sure the lifespan of the product lasts and and mm-hmm. it, it's all about reduction so you your company is a b corp right right which can you explain what that means exactly because we have a very global audience okay, so cool. um probably not do justice to b corp they're amazing but basically b corp's a new model for doing business that um includes not just making profit but also um um, you know, um, meeting certain standards around environmental uh, and social goals. And it's a really good idea because I think, I think where you're leading is really we need a new model of success. Yes. You know, because that drive to just, I mean, we have to make money, we have to be profitable or we don't survive, but we don't, do we have to grow so fast I, I, I think I told you the story that years ago I was considering going public. And, yes. Um, Please tell it to I the just audience. I remember, you know, a meeting with some business people about it, and they looked at my plans, and they just said, you know, you just don't have an aggressive enough growth plan to go public. So I thought, okay, I guess that's not the path for me. 
you know. And you wanted to do it because you wanted to raise money to open more stores? No, or? I didn't. I, you know, I always was more about organic growth. I liked the idea of growing um, where it felt like the business was pulling me rather than I was pushing it. So I felt like um, we talked about organic growth. We just wanted to grow naturally as, you know, people wanted the product and that kind of thing. So, um, so why did you entertain going public? You were, I think that that was when we ended up becoming an ESOP. It was I had to kind of, um, I was encouraged by my financial people to think about diversifying. All of my personal resources were in the company, and I just kept resor- you know, reinvesting all of my money. And um, they thought, if something happened to me. This is really, it was like facing my death that I had to realize that I had to do something with part of my company in order to get some of the money out so that um, my kids would have something or so that I, you know, wouldn't, you know, so that actually that the company could survive because the taxes that you have to pay um, were at risk of putting the company under if I, you know, got hit by a car or something like that, you know. Do you ever think about selling now? Um, you know, I never think about selling. Um, that doesn't mean I wouldn't sell one day, but I don't think about it. You know, I, I, I like what's happening now, and it's so important to me, the values of the company, and I really see the company more almost as a platform today of being able to make change in the world and to, um, you know, to share what we know and... Um, even though I don't like to speak in public, we have lots of other people who are good at that. So um, we can we can share what we know. Um, yeah, but um, I did sell at that point forty percent to the employees, which was kind of interesting because I got um, I got a chunk of money by doing that. It was like the employees got free ownership, and um, the company borrowed money from a bank in order to pay me. It was very interesting. That's fascinating. And there was a great tax deduction, too. So there's, there's good reasons to do that. <laughs> I think it's a qu- question of being at the right size to do it. And um, Through this journey, it, I'm sure you have tons of business lessons from your third. You just gave yeah. us one on how to, how to be an employee-owned company. But um, in terms of, of the sustainability and the, the social consciousness aspect of the business which is is so much of it is there one thing that was really hard that you wish you knew what you know now when you were going through it when you were trying to make a change in the way the business ran you mean in terms of sustainability yeah make a change I don't think I would have done anything differently what was the hardest part the hardest part was was uh, the hardest part was personally talking about it because I'm shy and because I, it never feels like enough. It always feels like there's so much more to do. So that was just always really hard to talk about. And because I'm not in the details of the work, we have a whole team that's really in the details of the work. And so, you know, I see my role as more um, just saying yes to lots of things, you know. So, um, but I don't do the work. So it's not as easy for me to, to speak about it. But it's important if you had one 
piece of advice for a young designer who wants to start their own brand and wants to do it in the right way, what yeah. would it be? Yeah, um, it would be that. Um, do it in the right way. <laughs> like, start out that way, you know. Care about um, sustainability and the people. and um, Yeah, um, but do it. Do it, you know, because business is a, a, a huge opportunity to make change. It's, it's a powerful, a powerful um, um, mechanism. Eileen, you're so cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing yeah, this. I you. think, do we have time? Can we open it up to questions? We, yeah. we would love for you to ask some questions. Um, I'm always curious about how you're thinking about making sustainable fashion accessible um, to more people because I think a lot of the sustainable fashion brands out there, uh, like Patagonia, Reformation, that we all love today, tends to be on a higher price point. So how do you think about making it more accessible, whether it be price point or just any other way? Oh, make it more accessible. Well... Um, we haven't done so well with that because I, our prices have actually gone up as we've kind of gotten more into this work. Um, but the recycled program is one way that people can enter the brand. Um, yeah, I think I do think the manufacturing, as the manufacturing changes, that there actually are ways to actually produce more to save energy and to save water. I, th I think the new technologies are going to make um, clothing affordable again, hopefully, you know, sustainable clothing. And I think once the laws are changed and everyone has to be responsible and, you know, you know use eco-materials and that kind of thing, then, the, well, that doesn't help with the, making it more accessible. That might mean we all have to be um, less consumers. I think the big question around consumption is is big. So I think I worry about how much how much we consume and how much we continue to consume and how to create businesses that are meaningful and valuable and and that don't encourage overconsumption. And um, so that's sort of what I try to do. Um, but you know, maybe education is a way to help people understand the value of more expensive things um, that they, that, you know, to buy things that, you know, still people should buy things they love, but the, the things that last and to understand design that has um, more of a timeless quality about it um, because we're, we do have to keep things longer. I think that's really important and recycle things and, you know, that kind of thing. Are you confident that consumer habits are changing? Um, I know the recycle market, you know, people buying used clothing is going up. Yeah. Um, and I think, uh, I don't know. I, 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 I think there's more awareness. Um, I worry about all the online shopping, <laughs> all the transportation, and, and how easy it is to buy online. Hi, I just want to say thank you for being here. Um, I was meeting with a fabric supplier a few weeks ago. Yeah. And they said that they just got a huge lecture from Eileen Fisher oh. <laughs> and that they're going to be coming back in a few weeks to give you sustainable 
um, more sustainable <laughs> fabrics. And I just wanted to know, are you doing that with a lot of your suppliers? I feel like that's, it was the most inspiring thing that <laughs> I've ever funny. encountered while I'm looking for sustainable fabrics as well. And so I was, I was just impressed and I wanted to know, do you do that with a lot of fabric Absolutely. suppliers? Yeah. <laughs> Educate well, I, them? I think <laughs> it, it always starts with asking questions and, you know, and, and yes, I'm sure our people are quite passionate. <laughs> I'm sure they do that. I mean, I started in the early days, like I said, asking questions. Just you know, um, can we take the chemical off of this? Why does this does it have to have formaldehyde? What you know? Like I remember unrolling a, a roll of fabric, and there was a huge sign formaldehyde. I was like, "Whoa! Roll that back up! Send that back! Yuck!" Gave me the creeps, you know. So um, I think it's just in our blood. So it wouldn't surprise me. <laughs> But we're powerful. It's amazing. I love that. What all the, you know, our voice, you know, how much power our voice has to just by asking questions, just by leaning in and, and offering them the possibility that, oh, maybe you'll buy from them. Maybe they'll get a big order if they, you know, do the, do the right thing. Uh, hi, uh, my name is Niraj. Uh, thanks for your time and sharing your insights. Uh, there are a couple of things that kind of confuse me about sustainability just yeah. because I'm unable to answer those Very questions. Confusing. Very um, confusing. A1 is just the sheer volume of things that we make in our business and most of it doesn't get sold to so the inventory oh. pile up. So even producing things that we can sell. Right. So that kind of confuses me as to why our business is not able to kind of uh, reconcile, align their demand and supply so we don't produce things we don't need. Getting control of inventory is something we struggle with, too, like producing the right things that are wanted at the right time and, you know, the combination of sort of data and intuition that takes to get that right. Uh, and we're not experts, and we're working hard at that. And because there's so much waste right there, that's a really important thing to get your arms around if you can. If we produce right, if we produce things, uh, what really excites me, actually, is the possibility of of sort of going further than just taking out the pesticides or the nasty chemicals in the dye process, but actually the possibility that we can um, draw down carbon in the way we um, farm and do agriculture and the way we're doing, making our wool and actually um, make the world better through production. I mean, that's crazy, but you can actually, you know, in architecture, they can build buildings that breathe, that clean the air. You know, we, there's actually technology that cleans the water as you go so that you can reuse the same water. And, you know, I'm, probably you're familiar with Tencel. That's, that's a material, you know, factories do that. And we're going to have to use those kinds of technologies. And so we're really leaning in, and that's part of our future plans is, you know, to actually have a positive impact on our planet to actually, you know, make things grow more rather than, you know, put a lot of nasty chemicals in the water and things like that and clean the water and, you know, all those things. So it's possible. It's possible. And so it's okay to produce if you produce it in the right way, you know. But still, still, there's still a lot of do we really need to buy so much? Do we really, you know, can we stop and be more mindful? Can we slow down? Can we think before we buy? Can we... How do, what does that mean in terms of the kind of businesses? How do we create and think differently about the kind of businesses we're creating? I think, I think the times are really challenging us to be innovative and creative in thinking differently, circular or the kind of products we make. And um, it's exciting, you know, to 
dive in and try to solve the problems of the world instead of, I mean, fashion is fun, clothes are fun, sort of, maybe, I don't know, I'm kind of tired of it, but <laughs> don't tell anybody I said that. Uh, but, you know, the idea of making a difference, you know, and doing something that's meaningful in the midst of creating a great business, that's, that's exciting. Hi, my name is Julia, and this Hi, is such an honor to have you here and speak, and it's really exciting for me to especially hear you speak and kind of wrestle with these ideas of sustainability kind of live and be open about it because I think it's so important. Um, and I was wondering, I've read that a lot of your inspiration um, was drawn from the kimono and this oh, right. sort of traditional craft. Yes. And I'm curious to see where you strike or where you find inspiration now because it seems like Eileen Fisher really finds the perfect balance between this traditional aesthetic but also technological innovation and it really resonates with the youth. So where do you draw oh, inspiration now? That's yeah. great. Um, well, um, for me personally, uh, the inspiration is about kind of trying to stay true to the DNA. Um, and that, so that's what I work on. And that's sort of my role of just kind of watching things and trying to kind of keep things aligned with the sort of original concept. But the teams are very inspired, you know, um, I think they're mostly inspired by material, you know, like finding new material and, and, and it's sustainable and um, it's, uh, you know, the, the knitting that's seamless knitting or they're, they're always, they're so excited to talk about all the sustainability aspects of the product and when they find new things, they get really excited to work with them. And um, so I guess, yes. And in the early days for me, it was material that always inspired me. And uh, now it's just, it's sustainable material, so... It's exciting. Hi, my name is Hannah. Thanks very much Thank for sharing you. your thoughts. My question is about the design process. So you mentioned earlier that you always try to design in a way that's not trend-led. Right. And I'm wondering, having been in the industry for quite a while now and also taking back garments you designed maybe a couple of years ago, right. what have you learned about designing for longevity? Right. I, I've learned we're doing it. It's really amazing. Um, that, um, that was what I was going to say when we were getting all these clothes back. I thought I was going to hate what I saw. I thought I was going to be just freaked out. But actually, I, I see the consistency in the design and the relevance of even the old pieces. And it's so interesting to me. And also, what I've learned is the quality of the materials. The quality materials really maintain their value. I mean, we have linen pieces that, that are probably 20 or 30 years old. You wash them, and they're, they look brand new. It's incredible. Some fabrics just keep their value and it's and you know that that and silk well silk does stain but so uh, each fabric has its issues as you know in the industry but um, but the beauty of of natural materials for me is really an in, in, in enduring kind of thing and um, the quality of quality materials that they hold up like even when we remake these art pieces the quality materials just like you know cashmere is cashmere and oh my god those pieces made with cashmere or the pieces made with silk are just incredible endlessly incredible even the old pieces so quality materials last and that working with quality materials matters hi i just wanted to thank you so much for being here and like giving us all this knowledge it's so greatly appreciated <laughs> and um my question is um 
Do you feel that a company can be truly 100% sustainable in every aspect, <laughs> whether it be in, honestly, in everything? Mm -hmm. And if not, or if yes, then what is the biggest challenge that you find to, pardon me, to achieve that? Yeah. Um, well, I think... Um I think it must be possible. We are not there. <laughs> we have ways to go, a long ways. But um, I, think, I think you have to be motivated. I think you have to want it. And I think you have to be committed. And, um, um, and I, think, um, I think the industry, we have to work. We can't do it alone. So we have to work with the industry. You know, we have to get the capital flowing to these businesses that are, you know, using the new technologies and, you know, we have to support organic cotton. Still only 1% of the cotton used in the world is, one, is organic. So we have to support, um, you know, these, we have to find ways to, to encourage the industry to come along with us because it's hard, you, we, I couldn't be 100% sustainable today because the systems aren't in place to make that possible. So we just do the best we can, and then we try to work on the systems, like lecturing our supply chain, <laughs> things like that, or you know, finding different suppliers. You know, we've moved out of certain dye houses if they wouldn't cooperate and do what we needed them to do. Or, you know, we're in a, a, a large enough size that we can actually, you know, make a difference, but not big enough that we can change the whole industry. So, Eileen, thank you again. This was okay. so great. Thank you. Thank you, Lauren. Thank you. Thank, you, Thank you all for coming. What a nice group. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Drive, delivered by DHL, where we hear stories of sustainable entrepreneurship. If you've enjoyed this episode, don't forget to subscribe, give us a rating, and you might be interested in joining the Business of Fashion's global membership community, BOF Professional. Our members receive exclusive deep dive analysis, regular email briefings, as well as unlimited access to our archive of over 10,000 articles, our new iPhone app, biannual special print editions, and all of the online courses and learning materials from BOF Education.